Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Uh, well, we may hear more from President Trump this week about those aluminum and steel tariffs uh, that he was talking about, which could end up being uh, the maximum that any of his advisors recommended, 24 uh, percent tariff on steel imports. Here to kind of look at what the possible implications of this are is Mike Dudas, partner and metals and mining analyst for Vertical Research Partners. Uh, he joins us here in our 1130 studios today, so we're very happy to see you. Uh, Mike, just walk us through what a 24% tariff on steel and a 10% tariff mm. on aluminum would do. So I think when you think of the big picture, it will increase steel prices and aluminum prices. But you'll also see dynamics where there may be an oversupply of steel or aluminum, say, in the Pacific, where a lot of the excess production of steel and aluminum occur, and a shortage in the, you know, this part of the market, the U.S., you know, North America, South American market, which could lead to higher premiums for users of U.S. and aluminum steel as opposed to, um, you know, and, and maybe a lower premium overseas. But generally, it's going to raise prices, could even raise them more for uh, customers of U.S. metals. But could you just uh, explain <clears throat> what you're talking about? In other yeah. words, it'll be uh, more expensive for people in the U.S. to buy steel and aluminum it, yeah, than it, elsewhere. It certainly could be. So most of the excess steel is produced outside the United States, primarily in Asia. So as tariffs of, of steel and limits of steel coming into this country – that's going to lead probably for less steel to come in here from Asia. So there's going to be more supply, less demand in Asia. And there'll be more demand, less supply, say, here in U.S. North America, which could lead to uh, uh, some pricing dynamics as well. If the 24% and 10% numbers are what's going to be recommended and go through. So so if you – and there was this interesting story about this because, of course, there are many steel companies that have operations in Ohio. Sure. But uh, there are also many companies in Ohio that, as you say, use steel and aluminum as an input. And mm -hmm. because the price is set globally rather than locally, they're saying that if you're a fabricator for the aerospace, the automotive, or another industry that's similar, you're going to end up having to pay higher prices for the very products that you then make in the United States. Correct. Now, some products are more intense or less intense than a certain steel or aluminum or all the different contents. Even automobiles have been moving away from steel in their bodies towards aluminum. But that's that's going to be a, that's a fair observation, especially with the economy, even before these tariffs and the discussions were announced, and, and, and President Trump mentioned that a couple of days ago, you know, prices were starting to improve, expectations, demand, supply was looking pretty good. So this gives a, a boost for that. But yes, there's a lot more consumers of steel and other product and other products that are going to be impacted by and even workers in those oh. industries, right? I mean, because I think there's like yeah. one there's estimates. I think one million workers mm -hmm. around across the United States. Mm -hmm work in industries that make products from steel and aluminum, mm -hmm. and there are about yeah. 80,000 workers uh, at st in steel plants. So that has been an argument used for 
decades about you know free trade and and you know relative it's fair or free trade and certainly from a political aspect and what President Trump got helped elected in that part of the country, and his Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross, who's intimately well known in the steel and the coal industries, uh, I don't think it's that surprising to get this type of announcement. But maybe the the number was a bit, a bit shocking. But he is a deal maker, so maybe you start here and work your way to something a little bit more ameliorative to everyone else. Just real quick, how much yeah. would prices increase? So depending on products, you could see, you know, flat roll rebar. To this point, you could see. 20 percent you know 10 15 20 percent pops in certain areas now there could be other aspects around the world where it kind of ameliorates but you're gonna you could see some you know some pretty decent pricing pops going forward uh one other uh area that i did want to hit with you was gold because there's been a big question about whether this is truly acting as an inflation hedge what what is gold right now and why is it underperformed what some people thought it's not bitcoin <laughs> okay, well, okay, so which that, wants to say it's digital well, gold? Yes, you could make it smaller and just call it Bitcoin. Right? Bitcoin, very good. Yeah, I'm surprised that hasn't even put on the exchange yet. So, um, yeah, I think it's interesting. Gold has been relatively holding its value over the past several months. It's been in a kind of a narrow trading range. I I think it's starting to f- sm- sm- sniff a little bit of inflation expectations rising. I think we've seen that in the bond market. I think we've seen that from some of the policies that we're seeing. And that is starting to creep into, I think, support for gold. So I think from the supply-demand balance, there's definitely much better demand for gold elsewhere, like in China and India, and supplies coming off because we've had such lack of capital spending the last five years. But I do think that gold's starting to uh, whiff a little bit of inflation and starting to support uh, support prices here. And I think you'll see that going forward as well. If you're an investor and you're thinking about uh, these kinds of uh, metals uh, as an investment, yeah. would you be looking to a company that that doesn't do gold exclusively? And I'm thinking, for example, of Freeport McMoran. In other words, you get copper, but you also yeah. mine gold rather than Gold Corp, for example. It's an excellent question because some of the pure gold names have not performed as well as some of the diversified miners, like a Glencore or um, Freeport, for example, which certainly has the impact of what's going on in Indonesia. So in a broad-based economic metal commodity recovery, which we are anticipating in metals like gold, uh, copper, zinc, lead, aluminum, uh, some of the diversifying miners might be a good place to be in, and one of our recommended names is Freeport uh, on, on that basis. Did you uh, happen to have a, any thoughts about the report last week that Apple is looking to uh, to uh, uh, access cobalt uh, directly uh, in order to uh, have that supply for their, their iPhones and their, their devices for their batteries and so on? So over cycles, we remember companies wanting to access some of the rare earth minerals. Remember that several years ago and trying to get direct. Um, the auto companies, remember Stillwater Mining back in the day, pal- Palladium in, in Montana. Oh, that's a good crack direct contract. So it's not unprecedented. And if an electric battery, electric vehicle world, as I'm sure you're quite aware, cobalt could be very, very important. So I can see a company like Apple wanting to do that. Now, how you do that and what countries you deal with and how you access, that's for another discussion. Uh, Just before you go, I want to get your thoughts on the dollar and how much you're really paying attention to it with respect to commodity prices. So you have to pay attention to it if you're trying to um, get a sense of where many of these commodities, especially the metals, are going. The dollar has, everybody's been calling for a bullish move in the dollar in 2018. They called for a bullish move in 17. It really hasn't occurred. And that's been very supportive, I think, across the board for many of the commodities. has been supportive for oil as well. Um, 
you're, I think you could see maybe a little bit of a, if the bond market starts to, you know, sell off and you get a little bit higher rates, that could get a bid to the dollar. But relative to the euro, relative to the yen, you know, the dollar has not acted as well. So I do think the path of least resistance right now continues to be lower. But uh, we could see some strength if the bond market starts to get funky on us. All right. Well, we're going to leave it there. But thanks very much for coming in and spending time with us. Mike Dudas is the partner and uh, metals and mining analyst for Vertical Research uh, Partners. Companies are buying back their shares at the fastest pace in the credit cycle. That is according uh, to fourth quarter data compiled by Brian Reynolds, who is an asset class strategist focusing on U.S. cash equities for Kennecord Genuity Corporation in New York. Brian joins us now. Uh, thank you so much for being with us. I just want to start with the actual data. What are you finding uh, and, and why were you looking at this particular data so closely? Well, throughout this bull market, buybacks have been the main source of higher stock prices. Investors collectively have done nothing during this bull market. Some people have put money into ETFs, but big investors like pensions have been selling stocks. So that's why I focus on the buybacks. What I look at is on Bloomberg, I add up the share count data of companies in the S&P 500. And I try to use that data to figure out how much stock they've taken out. And it may be that the fourth quarter saw a record for this cycle in buybacks. And that partly explains why stock prices were so strong at the end of the year. All right. So uh, the data that you uh, have out there, you're boosting your forecast for the fourth quarter share buybacks to $165 billion. That would exceed the $161 billion high uh, set for this cycle in the first quarter of 2016. Is this a bad thing? It depends on your time frame. We're essentially leveraging up our economy to fund share buybacks to push stock prices up. So while this bull market goes on, it's a good thing and it results in higher stock prices. But eventually, credit cycles end and they always end badly. I don't think this one ends for another three to five years. But when they end, you get disasters like you saw in 2008 and 2000. Hey, Brian, uh, just a little bit about the sort of nature of, of stock buybacks, uh, because, you know, you shrink the float. We got that. That t that typically is one of the, the things that, you know, if the company is looking to increase its earnings, it's great to shrink the float because that way uh, it looks like they're making more money. But uh, over time, is, is are there specific rules that uh, investors can follow that they could use that stock buyback perspective in order to make money? Well, I think the important thing to remember is that this lists the overall level of stock prices, so like the S&P 500. But in terms of individual sectors or companies, it can be random. For example, GE and IBM both bought back a lot of stock, and they've underperformed as investors took that money and reallocated it towards growth or investment. Right. So it's an overall guide, but not a very specific one. Okay, so then should you, should you combine it perhaps with something like growing free cash flow? And I uh, tip my hat to Charlie Biederman of Trim Tabs Investment Research, uh, who helped pioneer this idea. If you can find companies where they're increasing free cash flow and buying back their stock, would that be a good combo? Well, our that's, that's one idea. Our chief strategist, Tony Dwyer, who you all know, he's in favor of more economically sensitive names at this point, more growthier names, especially in the small and mid-cap area. That's probably where the money is going to be reallocated within the next three to four months 
And then after that, we'll talk about another reallocation. So, Brian, I, I think it also matters where companies get the money to finance share buybacks. A lot of it is financed with debt, but could it be that in the fourth quarter there was just more business confidence, uh, much more cash coming in through the door uh, that companies were looking to deploy? Well, profitability was up, so that helps a little bit. But most of the profits go to plant and equipment spending, which, as Tony Dwyer also points out, is beginning to accelerate. So the cash flow from business tends to get reinvested in business. Most of the buybacks are funded with debt, although now we've got a kicker in the form of repatriation from the tax code. So there's likely going to be more buybacks ahead. In fact, announced buybacks, in other words, upcoming ones, may be setting a record this quarter. But the buybacks that are done with debt, will those be limited because the value of issuing debt is going to go down because the deductibility uh, rules have been changed? The demand for corporate bonds is unchanged by tax reform. That's our nation's public pensions and insurance companies putting money to work. So their appetite for credit is as ravenous as ever. What this does, it cuts the supply of credit. Companies want to issue fewer debt fewer amounts of debt, and that means there's more shadow banking that's going to fill that void. And shadow banking, the more of it you have, the higher the stock prices go until it gets thrown into reverse two years after the yield curve inverts. So, Brian, can you give us, uh, take us back in history uh, before the 2007-2008 financial crisis. What was the cycle of share buybacks then, and can it serve as a guide for what we're seeing now? It looks very similar to this cycle, except that cycle was shorter. It was only four years because the yield curve inverted quickly in 2005, bringing on the crisis in 2007. But it was much the same with companies buying back stock, using borrowed money, while investors kind of sat on their hands until the last two years of the bull market. So in other words, I guess what I'm trying to, to wonder is, are we going to look back and say that companies borrowed money to buy their shares at the highest possible valuations, which was basically throwing it away? Well, the highest possible valuation that we did was in the 1990s, which was throwing it away. The last time was less of a higher valuation, and we're at a lower valuation now. But essentially, yes, we are leveraging up our economy to push up stock prices, just not at the high valuations yet. And Brian, just quickly, I mean, could this be changed, let's say, if there were new rules in accounting? Because right now, you know, spending money on research and development doesn't necessarily benefit uh, the way you look at the, the balance sheet. Well, this is driven by our public pensions who really aren't impacted by rules and regulations. They have a need to make 7.5%, and they're going to lend money to anybody that wants it. So maybe at the margins, some rules and regulations could be changed. But unless we find a way to reg regulate punch public pensions, and they think they're sovereign, so they really isn't, this cycle is probably going to go on again. All right, we're going to leave it there. Brian Reynolds, asset class strategist, U.S. cash equities for Canaccord Genuity. Saturday was the day that we received Warren Buffett's annual letter, but this time around, it was shorter than usual. It didn't have a ton of huge ideas, 
But if you dig beneath the surface, it said quite a bit. Catherine Jaglinski joins us now. She's U.S. finance reporter for Bloomberg News, who spent her entire weekend eating uh, pizza in the office while covering this letter. Thank you so much for being here. So uh, what stood out to me, and then I want to ask if, if this sort of was your big takeaway, was that Berkshire Hathaway, his company, really can't find a good acquisition target. They called it a drought. I mean, last year wasn't a great year for them finding deals that they liked. Uh, Buffett clarified that like a lot of it was prices. The prices for businesses were reaching all-time highs. And um, the, the availability of cheap debt has made it just even more hard to actually find what they've been looking for. Let's talk about the company Berkshire Hathaway. It is uh, an insurance business as much as anything else, correct? Now it's actually tilted a lot towards um, kind of non-insurance operations, manufacturing, but insurance is a good chunk of it. And we saw in this recent earnings, sometimes when insurance goes bad, like with the hurricanes, um, it can it can really hurt your um, earnings a bit. So if uh, they're shifting their attention to what industrial companies with the purchase uh, previously of Burlington Northern Santa Fe, uh, the precision cast parts was a huge one he struck Mm -hmm. recently. Um, He praised that CEO, Mark Donegan, in the letter, which is I think that's always sort of telling you want to, you know, um, a couple of managers often get a a heaping of praise um, over in the letter. And Mark Donegan was a huge one. So uh, he also has a record cash pile of $116 billion right now, largely held in T-bills. This is burning a hole in their pocket. They want to put it to work. The fact that they did say there was this dearth of opportunities, does that indicate something bigger about the markets and kind of perhaps that Warren Buffett sees things as vastly overvalued? I mean, I think you can sort of um, deduce that, yeah, it, it means things aren't great. I mean, Buffett does tend to play best when things are, are faltering and he can kind of step in with his um, investing knowledge and provide some lifelines. I think he did say, you know, that he wants to make one or more huge acquisitions. It's also a thing of he really needs large acquisitions to really bolster earnings because Berkshire has gotten so huge. Although some of those uh, attempts have gotten stymied in the past, right? Last year was kind of it was it was rough. Uh, Kraft Heinz tried to approach uh, Unilever and that sort of fell apart. They didn't want to do a hostile te- takeover. Berkshire's um, pretty um, they don't like those in general. And then um, they also bid for an energy company and that they were bested in that attempt. And it 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 was a rough year. Talk about healthcare for just a moment, because of course. Uh... J.P. Morgan Chase, as well as Amazon and uh, Berkshire Hathaway, have all spoken about an as yet unspecified healthcare initiative. Uh, Todd Combs, who is uh, one of the top people at Berkshire Hathaway, is also on the board of J.P. Morgan. And I'm wondering if you could offer: Is there any idea of what it is they're going to uh, be talking about? Buffett talked about it a little this morning, and I think it's interesting. I mean, Todd Combs, he's one of his uh, Buffett's investing deputies, but he's gotten a lot of power with this healthcare venture. I mean, he's been, um, you know, part of the, one of the people tasked with sort of helping create it. And um, even Buffett himself said today that, you know, um, Buffett agrees that this is a, a huge cost problem that they need to tackle. But um, even Todd was working really hard at kind of figuring out ways they could do it. They still don't have a CEO for that venture. So I think that'll be really interesting to sort of see 
who will actually sort of take charge. Well, it was interesting to actually hear what Warren Buffett had to say on this. He said uh, that there certainly is pricing power when you're this big, but that was just a little bit of it, that this healthcare venture would go much further. What does that mean? I thought it was interesting. I mean, he said, you know, yeah, it might be kind of easy to shave off three or four percent of costs in this in this thing because of their negotiating power, but they want to do more. And I think that speaks to the the desire for Buffett and these two other large companies to really sort of do more of a systemic kind of overramp. I mean, they said it will focus on their companies to begin with, but there's kind of an idea that this is going to spread much larger to the extent of like how it will. We're not totally sure yet. Also, the company has been buying the shares of Apple while it's been selling the shares of IBM. It's kind of a whole new uh, world for Buffett, right? He stood by IBM for a long time, even when people, I think, were starting to question why. Um, he noted today, it was, you know, it wasn't a great uh, idea. And um, yeah, Apple has continued to be kind of one of their favorite bets over the past year. Um, it'll be interesting to see whether that kind of continues or if, um, or if they kind of go somewhere else with this new sort of technology bent. Thank you so much for joining us and for following this. And I'm sure we'll be talking more about it in the days to come. Catherine Shiglinski, U.S. finance reporter for Bloomberg News, uh, who will be heading out to Omaha shortly. Thank you so much uh, for being with us. And of course, Pim, I would be remiss in not mentioning at some point airlines, since I know you receive airlines weekly and uh, enjoy. He likes airlines. He does like airlines. Who yeah, would have thought? As but long as they make money. <laughs> But to potentially buy one, to potentially own one. Uh, interesting. What do you think? Buffett new- Air? Buffett Air. I think yeah. a lot of people with would fly lot, it. With, uh, Although Diet Coke and uh, everything say, would be economy class. If if that. That, that's, <laughs> if that, that would be, be a luxury on a Berkshire Hathaway <laughs> check. We will, we will continue discussing offline what Buffett Airlines uh, would look like. Xi Jinping's decision to uh, step aside uh, from China's typical presidential term limits is uh, making it seem as though he might just uh, indefinitely be in charge of uh, China. And here to tell us more about the Chinese political world and what it means for all of us is Mike McDonough. He is a Bloomberg economist, and he joins us here in our 1130 studios. Mike, so what about this idea that uh, Xi Jinping uh, demonstrating a willingness to... uh, sidestep tradition when it comes to Chinese, uh, you know, the idea of who rules China and for how long? Well, this isn't a a new idea, so to say. Um, There was the idea existed when they were having their last big uh, meeting that there was going to be some signals that he would try to remain uh, in power beyond five years. Uh, I think that actually many people had expected this. Uh, I think the timing of this particular announcement has surprised a lot of people. Like, why now? Uh, and I think that has more to do with the economic outlook than any any type, any other reason, really. And Well, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll elaborate on that. So, you know, uh, right now, things are relatively stable in China. The economy looks pretty good. Uh, she's, I, I don't know if he really has an approval rating, but if he did, it would be rather high right now. So it seems like a good time to uh, put this kind of measure through. Because when you look ahead, um, 
you know, especially going into 2019, the economic, the global economic environment could become a little bit more turbulent. So it might be more, it, it's more difficult to make this sort of announcement when things are um, more volatile, maybe markets are selling off, maybe confidence isn't as high, whereas you could just do it right now. Well, but let's talk about the implications of this. Some people are saying that this gives Xi Jinping more power to deal with the U.S. more harshly with trade negotiations. Uh, others are saying he's taking a page from Vladimir Putin, president of Russia, uh, in consolidating his power. Uh, do you view this as some sort of authoritarian move that could end up creating uh, bigger trade and other skirmishes? Well, I mean, anytime somebody is is in office and reduces, not reduces, eliminates term limits, that there's some indication there that there's some consolidation of power. Uh, it was also announced that he was going to be formalizing, I think, an anti-GAF department, uh, if I if I read the release properly. Uh, so, but I don't think this increases his power per se, at least not in the near term, because you know he already had uh, his name put into the party constitution. Uh, so all of the things that he needed, he has all of the, he already has all of the titles he needs, uh, and he already has his name in the Constitution, which is uh, something that uh, certainly gives him the power he would need to, to have these kind of fights. Uh, and I think that when it comes to dealing with uh, the U.S., I think it's going to be a kind of quid pro quo. Uh, if we if we cross what they perceive to be a line, then they'll come back and hit us with, with something else. The question really that everybody has is where exactly is that line? And that's what we don't know. Uh, the Chinese will probably be willing to accept uh, some marginal protectionism, but not anything widespread like uh, you know 30% tariff against Chinese imports or something of, uh, of that nature. Mike, when you talk about the political situation in China, does this then indicate that while he may have, uh, President uh, Xi Jinping may have more uh, power that also means more responsibility and responsibility for many things that are not controllable by one person. And I'm thinking there about the debt that uh, Chinese companies have uh, burdened themselves Sure, with. sure. What I was alluding to when I said the long-term outlook is less certain and there could be some volatility on the horizon. It's not just globally. Uh, and what I meant by globally is you're going to have a bunch of central banks, including the Fed, shrinking their balance sheets, tightening ECB, BOJ eventually, the BOE. So that's going to cause some global turmoil potentially. Uh, but within China, you do have the debt situation. Uh, the government's trying to deleverage while also rebalance the economy and sustain growth at a reasonable pace or what they believe to be a reasonable reasonable pace. And it's unlikely to be uh, a linear, straight um, move. You're going to see a lot of volatility. You're going to have periods of time where um, people are panicked. Uh, people are going to say China's headed towards another hard landing. Uh, and that's not really a great time to make this sort of announcement. That probably won't be the case. In, in China, whenever, you know, everybody looks at China in panic or euphoria, there's never any like kind of median view on China. So, um, you, were, you are going to have those cases coming sometime over the next couple of years where people look at China in a panicked way, uh, and you don't want to have to be juggling this announcement while that happens. And he doesn't have full... He, he does have more control than probably any other uh, leader of any major large country, just because China does have such a closed economy, but he doesn't have complete control. And we've seen that over the past two or three years when we have had these panics, you know, be it capital outflows, be it what happened in the equity market. Uh, so, you know, it's it's going to be 
a tricky thing to manage for anyone, um, including President Xi, over the next five to 10 years in China. You mentioned the anti-graft unit that he's pulling together, and uh, I'm struck by the Anbang seizure and the potential asset sales and the H&A move that uh, the Chinese government made. I'm just wondering if uh, his consolidation of power and this sort of extension of his potential term uh, in perpetuity, whether that gives him more power to go after specific companies that might otherwise have been politically connected? Uh, I mean, it, it certainly helps uh, increase his control over or, or gain, gain some power. But like when you look at um, what these companies did and how the government reacted, you know, they have been identifying issues with these companies for quite some time. In fact, they redid the rules on outward investment by Chinese companies and, and citizens based on uh, some of the mistakes they perceived these companies had made. Uh, you know, how long ago did they do that? That was uh, around September. I think it was the fall, late summer that they announced that. So uh, you you saw this big surge uh, in Chinese companies buying U.S. companies. I made this chart ages ago. I should find it. Um, you saw this big surge leading, and, and all of a sudden, I guess it was late 2016, early 2017, it just went to practically zero. And that was when the government said, everyone stop what you're doing. We're going to put out some new guidelines on what you can and cannot invest into. Like, I, I think now uh, you can't buy into casinos, for example, or sports teams. These have been banned. Uh, and really, the the things that you need to target are things that could long-term benefit China's economy, you know, uh, uh, raw material companies, uh, technology companies, etc., not sports teams. So, in other words, the stage has been set for a while. This is yet another move uh, in a long train of events that have consolidated his power. Yeah, and certainly, as I said, most people were expecting signs of this to have occurred early, uh, late last year, earlier this year, and this is just verification of what a lot of people had anticipated. Mike McDonough, Bloomberg economist, thank you so much for joining us uh, in our 1130 studios. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.